Hi, I'm Tom Sherrington. And I'm Emma Turner. Welcome to our new show, Mind the Gap, Making Education Work Across the Globe, where we talk about closing gaps in global education through proven strategies and research-based practices. You'll hear our individual unique perspectives, as well as interviews with some of the most compelling authors and thinkers in the pre-K to 12 ecosystem. And now, enjoy today's show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Mind the Gap, Making Education Work Across the Globe with me, Tom Sherrington, and Emma Turner. Hello, Emma. Hello. And we are delighted, absolutely thrilled and honoured to have as our guest today, the mighty Tom Bennett. Hello, Tom. It's my honour, Tom. <laughs> Good to see you. We're like the two Ronnies here. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. Uh, it, the, 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 the analogies, I can see it. And, and Emma's surrounded by Toms. It's, it's a scary thing. But we've 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 made a list of people we want to talk to ages ago, and we've been doing this a while. And, and we it's like we well, haven't got Tom Bennett, but I, I think we're almost too scared, scared to invite No, no, no. Honestly, it's it's just <laughs> we we almost like to pluck up the courage to ask you because you just like you have this sort of aura. That's a great of comeback. Greatness. I love that. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Good save, Sherrington. Good save. Oh, I know. But it's true. I mean, I, uh, and I, I did an interview with you when you when your Running the Room book came out a, a year or so ago, and mm. it was just it's so interesting to talk to you about that. But so we are going to discuss that with you. But first, I want to talk to you a bit about Research Ed because it's coming back, isn't it? So it's coming yes. back. It never it's went away. It already is. Where are we with Research Ed? Well, it, it never really went away. It was just it was just slumbering beneath the ocean like the great Cthulhu, waiting to rise again and consume the earth. Uh, sorry, that went a bit dark there. Um, <laughs> I mean, research ed is—it's um, always been a bit of a concept. It's an idea. It's a dream. It's a candle in the wind. It doesn't really exist. Um, but then, before anything exists, it's an idea, like a hand grenade. And and, and research ed—we don't have any staff. And we, <laughs> we we don't have any money. Um, and we don't, we don't have any premises or anything like that. What we've got is a lot of people bound together by the belief that it's quite useful to volunteer and promote evidence-informed education. So we were primarily a conference-based organisation. And, you know, obviously that went up the spout uh, come COVID, as did many other things. And then Helena and I were talking to Matt Hood and we had the idea of putting together research at home. So we did a series of, of, kind of you know, 45-minute, one-hour sessions, which went went crazy. I mean, we, we've had hundreds of thousands of, of, of views for those sessions. We did it for about 80 days. And it was basically free CBD and it's still available. And then the minute we got a sniff that we might be able to do conferences again, we started to plan. Um, so we've had a few virtual conferences during lockdown. And they went really well. And people, I think, really appreciated them because the hunger's still there. But even I wasn't sure if people would want to come back to the research idea after about 13 months. And I put a tweet out saying, listen, I think we're going to do this again. And people, you know, people just went nuts for it. So we sold um, all of our tickets uh, for the research conference in September in about nine days. Wow. You know, it normally takes about three months to do that, but people just went, I felt like Justin Bieber. <laughs> I felt like some kind of K-pop sensation. Um, and, and there's opposite appetite there. And it's still an act of ambition and hope. You know, I've, I've always believed there's nothing false about hope because we still think we'll be able to go ahead 
but you never know. I mean, things could change. But we planned well, in the future. What's the main thing for you? Because I feel like I mean, I I would I feel very privileged to be. I feel like I was there at the kind of you know I was at Woodstock kind of thing. But I was at the first research head event. And I'm you're very proud of that. You're, you're 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 one of the the, the consultant surgeons for, for research head. I've, I've I feel like. I feel honored to be part of that. And I've coll- I've collected. I've got about twenty five programs um, <laughs> from, from the different events I've been to. That's why, yeah. Like a total, no, like like a sort of football fan that keeps the match day programs. You've got yours. <laughs> oh yeah, look at that. Some of these will be worth money in a few years' time. I've got I've got a pile. Like that. Okay. So, so I want to ask you a slightly deeper question about this because what. No, we people are involved in it like you and, and I feel like I'm happy to you know delighted to be anywhere close to it. But why is it? And what what is it about it that makes it so important to people who who get involved with it? Why do you think it works so? First of all, I, I've got to say here that we blundered we blundered upon success. You know, it was successful despite my my, my efforts rather than because of them. But I'm happy to take credit for it now. And and I, and I, I've thought a lot about what it is that makes it made it work in the first place. And honestly, I think there's a few simple things which, which made it interesting. Number one, we're talking about evidence-informed education, and I think there was an appetite for that. It was bursting to get out. The people were sick to their back teeth of uninformed um, shamanism and, and folk magic and folk teaching, and here's what I reckon, and you know, people selling books uh, based on hunches and intuition, and just you know, pop psychology and stuff like that. So I think I think people have had enough of that, but there's never been a platform for it. I think social media catalyzed it because it enabled us to short circuit the traditional um, conversational social cultures of the priesthood, where ideas would be given to us like Moses from Mount Sinai, and now teacher could speak unto teacher, and we could talk directly to academics. I think it was also the fact that we were quite democratic. We had teachers speaking and leaders speaking, but also academics and researchers and ministers and people involved in think tanks and charities and MRI operators. And everybody could speak as long as it was an evidence-informed perspective and education. And it's a community. And I realized that, 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 that we had pocket bubble communities, but also an international community of people that shared the same values. And, and I flatter myself that a little bit of it is the network of people that I've met along the way and, and, and people that Helene have met along the way and, and people like yourselves and so on, that there's a network of people who share many things, difference, but many things in common. And the thing they have in common is an, a genuine desire to make things better. And the last thing is it's non-profit. You know, nobody makes a buck. I don't get a salary. I, I, I don't get a cent out of research ed. And because of that, people will, will contribute. And that's a lovely thing. It's nice to be part of that. You know, I'll never get rich from research ed, but there's more to life than money, Tom. Oh yes, but I feel like I mean I I, I think that's that captures it really well, and I I think those things that people are looking forward to coming together, and it's the fact that it's there. Uh, all the spin-off events and the and the online versions have been really good, but it's that that coming together and then the connecting and then and moving on and the debates. So I mean it's great. I mean it, I, so I I would want to I could talk to you the whole thing just about research here, but I'm excited to do it's coming back, and um, and I, I feel like you know you that you're owed a sort of debt of gratitude for getting it going and being a catalyst because you need people who kind of can be bothered to get it, get it going. But then it, it's got a momentum now and um, and it's you know got a global thing as well. So well for that, it's brilliant. But let, let's, let, let's talk about behaviour. So Emma, I'll pass this on to you to get oh, this ball out. Neat segue, more of like a whiplash. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. Whiplash handover. 
No, I'm like or something in between. <laughs> I did have a question about research, Ed, but it'll keep. I'll ask, I'll ask Tom another day about that one. Sure. But I hadn't read this until about okay. two weeks ago. Yeah. And I deliberately not read it. <laughs> Very deliberately not read it. I've heard that um, before. Deliberately not read your book. Okay. Deliberately not read it. But um, and then I did read it on actually Sam's recommendation. He said, you need to read this. So, so I read it. And then I was so stunned because it wasn't the book that I thought it was going to be. Oh, really? What did you think yeah. it was going to be? Well, I I thought it was going to be really secondary. I, right. thought, it, I thought it was going to be. How dare um, you? <laughs> Very dear. I you. Be really focused in all of the conversation around exclusions and you know yeah. um, isolation booths and this that and the other. And I read it, and I actually had to kind of like throw it down at one point because I thought <laughs> I, was I thought I was listening to myself. <laughs> I was like, oh my goodness! And the thing that jumped out at it for me really jumped out. And I, and I might be totally wrong here. I might have misread this entirely. Yeah. I read that, and what I was reading was really good primary practice. Fancy that. <laughs> and I don't get too surprised. <laughs> no, but I can't I, believe there was anything of value in this. I can't believe it. It's actually, it's actually I, I was labouring under the misapprehension that this was a book about, about behaviour in secondary schools. Well, Emma, if I, if I could, thank you for, for puncturing that myth. I um, I mean... My background is secondary. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's always, you're right, that's always going to be a danger. But I have dedicated my life, like uh, like Grasshopper from Kung Fu, to, <laughs> to, to, to trying to understand behaviour in children, and I guess people in general. And some of the best practice in terms of behaviour management I've ever seen comes from early years, Key Stage 1, and AP Pro and Special Provision. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is that when you teach the very, very young children, you realise because life punches you in the face with it, that children don't know how to do stuff. Yeah. But but basic stuff that we take for granted, this is the curse of expertise, the curse of knowledge. They, you know, children don't know how to blow their nose. You've got to teach it to them. So if you're in a kindergarten environment, you've got to show a child how to blow their nose, turn their shoelaces, and how to apologise to someone and how to wait for two minutes and how to go to the back, yeah. all these wee social skills. And that's where I learned loads from. And I realised that essentially it was just a continuum up to secondary, that, it, that essentially most of these principles were universal principles and that yeah. a lot of them were just adapted depending on the age group. But I'm, listen, I'm really delighted that you thought it was it was primary relevant. because I, I, I genuinely did. And especially page 100 to like 102, 110. That's, oh, wow. that section on culture, about classroom culture and what you expect from the children um, and the bit, the bit about originating in necessity, I was like, that is primary practice. We have to run our rooms like this because, like yeah. you say, these children don't know how to line up. This is new to them. They don't know how to sit down to transition from the table to the door to the assembly hall. So this is our bread and butter. And and now I'm reading it and I'm thinking this this is primary practice. And I was it completely blew my mind to be perfectly honest because I was well, I, I'm good really But also when you look at the early years curriculum. And less so Key Stage 1, but still Key Stage 1, there's a lot of mention about appropriate social developmental milestones. Yeah. You don't get that in secondary. You know, you, there's very little kind of, you know, by the age of 14, they should be able to tie their shoelaces. It's kind of, but it's, but it's understood that this is very much a, a, an incubator of those behaviours. Yeah. And that's why, to my, for my money, 
I want to think about behaviour, I would go to early years, key stage one or, or AP. That makes my heart sing, Mr. Bennett. That really does. But the, the question that it threw up for me. Oh, there's a question, right? Okay. There is a question, not just an observation. Lots, lots in um, there somewhere. The question that threw up was around about sort of September time, there's lots of posts on social media about secondary teachers saying oh the year sevens are so needy and they're so biddable and they're so quiet and I can't get anything out of them and they behave so well and then da, 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 da. my question is if that's that's what's happening in year seven what happens after that where what where does the kind of the the challenging behavior come from if they yeah. come in year seven and they are the kind of biddable little year sevens well this is interesting right there's, there's this kind of weird, unspoken, sometimes spoken rivalry and tension between the primary and secondary sector. It's entirely unnecessary, but, but you know, but tribes got a tribe. Um, I get a lot of secondary teachers that say things like, I'm not there to teach them behaviour, I'm there to teach them maths. And I go, boy, are you in the wrong job? Because <laughs> teaching is a relational process, teaching is a dialogic process, you know, coaching is a dialogic process. You don't just, bleh, you don't just sick up the learning and expect them to do something with it. Sorry about the image. Now, in primary school, there's a there's a far greater tendency to realise that people have to socialise the children into the habits and the routines of the school system. Not enough still, but it's but it's more prominent. Also, primary schools tend to be smaller. Also, primary school practitioners tend to be, um, well, they're nicer people in general, I usually find. There's nicer people. Um, second, secondary school teachers have to be a bit harder and more cynical because people throw things at them. But in the primary sector, you've got this kind of much more nurturing environment, much more relational environment. It's usually smaller classes. Everyone knows everyone's name. You don't get the big 2,000-pupil megaschools in primary normally. Um, and you get the kids all day long, so you develop this really intense relationship with them. Kids go from that type of environment, so then they, boom, they see 15 teachers in a week. And they, see, and they see them for very short periods of time. And every room's got different cultural expectations. And these, and year seven, for many people, is a, a real shock because they've been dropped from warm, soothing water into very, very cold water indeed. And the children, for a while, think to themselves, I'll just do what I've always done. I'll, I'll, you know, and they're often quite compliant. They're often quite teacher-pleasing and so on. And then they realise that a lot of the teachers in secondary school, not always, just, I'm not trying to generalise here, but they let them away with stuff that they didn't before because the teachers in secondary didn't know what the expectations of the feeder school were. So the kid eventually starts thinking, hang on, I don't have to do this anymore. I don't have to double underline the first paragraph because no, nobody seems to care if I do it or not. So maybe I won't do it or maybe I won't do the work. And it's true, you see you, know, you see their books and you see the work just kind of go off a cliff, which is why you look at a through school and they, they usually don't suffer this, this problem. And what good schools do is they have this kind of, this kind of, um, Venn diagram of year five, six, and seven, where you know teachers and staff from both schools do lots of visits, and sometimes they even start the curriculum at the end of year six, and sometimes they'll do a bit of year six and year seven. And you know, I've seen some wonderful experiments going on to try to get around this, but it's basically it's just anything to do with um, puberty, like the kind of like I mean, in my experience, like in schools with not good systems, when I was a younger teacher, for sure, you know, year eight. Year, year nine was pretty tough. And yeah. there was a kind of students who are more likely to start pushing the boundaries because they can, obviously. Uh, they start to sort of think they're developing a kind of agency. There's a natural yeah. adolescence period. I mean, to what extent do you feel that is, is a driver? 
Well, there's a, there's a, there's an old saying, isn't there, that um, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Well, biology eats culture for breakfast, and adolescence. <laughs> Adolescence is the, it isn't just a ticking time bomb. It's a, it's a nu- nuclear hand grenade that goes off inside people's heads and then their bodies. So developmentally, you're absolutely right. There's lots of things which are concomitant with that. So, for example, the two main things that happen at the adolescent phase, which are relevant to this conversation, is there's an enormous spike in conformity. This is the weirdest thing, right? Kids become super conformist, they, not because they want to be robots, because they want to fit in with their peer groups. They don't want to stand out. They want to be accepted. Why? Because of this emergent sense of who they are, and they feel very vulnerable, and they feel very exposed. And also, they, they, they become more impulsive. The impulsivity spikes in the adolescent phase too. It's just a biochemical thing. And children lose, to some extent, the capacity to attach uh, present circumstances with future outcomes. So they become more kind of reckless and passionate. And also they start to notice one another in, 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 a, in a more prurient sense. And all of a sudden, you know, pleasing the teacher becomes less important. We know, for example, that peer approval matters far more than adult approval in the adolescent phase. I mean, mileage varies, but as a cohort. Mm. You're listening to Mind the Gap, presented by John Cat Educational. Over the past six decades, John Catt has supported teachers and school leaders with research-based, easy-to-use professional development books for the entire faculty. Visit us.johncatbookshop.com in the United States or johncatbookshop.com or elsewhere across the globe to find the latest titles. I love that phrase you use on page 110 about the centre of you. I have read this book. (laughs) You've you've gone from, I don't want to read this book, I'm choosing not to, I'm a very thorough student, Mr. Penny. Thank you very much. <laughs> you to do something, do God something bless. well. That, you know, but you describe it as the centrifuge of peer pressure, which I think is an absolutely brilliant way of describing it. Have you forgotten that you'd use that phrase? Because <laughs> that's good. No, I, I was admiring it from afar, thinking, what a lovely <laughs> Yeah, but and, and it, maybe that is one of the things that we don't necessarily have to deal with at primary and why the approach in primary can be so different yeah. because we're not battling that centrifugal beast that you're that you are in secondary it's definitely still there though um you know when my wee girl came home a couple of years ago she's seven now i remember she came home a few years ago asking for smiggle right oh, and only don't, few... don't. i could remortgage my house absolutely right the smiggle is basically stationary that smells of strawberries and you had a zero one at the end in terms of the price that's the only difference i can discern and then she didn't suddenly wake up one morning thinking, I wish my stationery to smell like raspberries. She, she saw somebody else with it. So it's, 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 a, it's a big pool. You know, pester power is still a thing mm. in the pre-adolescent phase. It just gets more pronounced in the adolescent phase. Can I ask you, Tom, because like, you, you, you're, you're, you're involved with this at so many levels. So you have a sort of a, a micro kind of contact with schools and doing training and talking to individual teachers. And then you also have a policy thing. I mean, you have this thing. How comfortable are you with this whole thing of being the the behaviour czar and that whole thing? Because every time, do, are you sort of like, do you wish you weren't, or are you, is it something you wear with pride? I mean, what's your view of that? Because it's an amazing thing. You are like kind of the central. You know, every time there's a behaviour debate, you know, the government says something, and you're thinking you know, they didn't even tell you about it, and suddenly you have to represent behaviour on in on a national level. Listen, uh, Tom. Yeah, yeah. I said I know what you mean. It's a bit of a double edged sword at times because. Number one, when I was teaching, I, I wanted to get better at behaviour. I started to write about it. And when you're a writer, you want an audience. And all of a sudden, I found that, you know, well, you found this to yourself, that all of a sudden, people of influence are reading it. You think, oh, my, that's amazing. And then they say to you, we want you to help us with these big projects. And you go, this is my dream come true. 
a, t- a teacher practitioner being invited to some extent to try to influence things to make it better for other teacher practitioners. And, you know, to some extent, I, I could never uh, be unhappy about that because that, that's what you've always wanted. And, and and I still feel like that. And while sometimes the czar title is a bit of a double-edged sword because I don't actually have any power, I, I can't make anything happen. I can only advise. But it's an independent role. And let's face it, who doesn't want to be called a czar? I mean, that's amazing. <laughs> um, I, you know, let, let's let's get real here. Carve it on my tomb, uh, which should be like Napoleon's. And um, so I, I really enjoy that. I mean, it's, it's an honour to be asked to, to, to work with people in this respect. And often, you know, you get some stick occasionally. This is, this is the, the drawback. You get some stick from people saying, look at you working with the filthy scum that they are. You know, and I think to myself, which government do you want me to work with? Because there's only one just now. You know, which which Department for Education, should, perhaps the alternate dimension, Marvel multiverse one, where the people you like are in charge? Because that ain't happening here. You know, I'll work with whoever's in charge if I'm asked to influence something to do with education. And I'm bloody honoured to do so. And I'll be, I'm delighted to do so. I think it's a good attitude. Do you feel like, I just, do you feel like things are getting better then? Because I feel like there's a whole debate. Sometimes behaviour's in crisis and sometimes, you know, it's the debate gets so on, so unnuanced. But do you see, because of all the thinking and all the effort people are putting into systems and, and my experience is that I see very few sort of catastrophic behaviour scenarios, but I see quite a lot of sort of teachers, in, you know, struggling within the systems, yeah. which is quite good. But what's your sense of that, the sort of general Listen, state of this, this is a question I've been asking myself for about 12 years. Is behaviour getting better or worse? There's, it's impossible to accurately or scientifically validate that question, to answer that question in either way, simply because the data we've got changes from year to year. So, for instance, you can't go by often behavioural reports simply because um, I don't trust their judgment when it comes to evaluating a school's behaviour. I, I don't. I mean, I, I, I've got more trust now, but that's only because they've listened to me. Um, but it used to just be, I know, but it used to be that the inspectors would come and they would have very strong predetermined understandings of a school and they would speak to about five kids and look at 15 questionnaires from 14 completely barmy parents and they would, they would form their judgment I mean bollocks to that um, what you need to do to get under the bonnet is to look at habits and routines and things that people are doing without being asked and do people understand what the systems are and how is it enacted and how is it trained so there's that um, I think what's better now that we know is better is that in the bad old days like the 70s or the 80s you would get some real sink estate schools, you know, where the kids were literally running riots before HMI. And now that's gone because HMI exists and now those schools tend to get shut. So there's a certain bar of improvement. I would, ge- I genuinely think that in the last, say, six years, and this is non-scientific, this is anecdata here, that schools are starting to think a lot more about routines and systems and so on. Some of it has been catalyzed by some of my work, but some of it has been catalyzed by the work of lots and lots of other people like, for instance, like Sam Strickland um, and, 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 and you know, the, the Michaela schools and the Dixon Trinity schools and, the, and some of the better art schools and so on that are, are, are doing it and actually making it happen. And because of social media, people are no longer scared of saying, look what we're doing, we can do these things. And other people go, that's fantastic. I'd like, I'd, I'd like some of that too. But the training in it is still dreadful. That's the big problem, I would say. Just thinking with your global, not global, national overview, yeah, behaving. I was talking to Catherine Morgan the other day, who's in, incidentally making her debut at Research Ed London. So, 
there you go. Um, we should call it New Faces. Pardon? We should call the event New Faces. Anyway, carry on. Um, but we were talking about um, what do you think needs to happen or what could happen at a societal level to improve behaviour in schools? Is there anything that you think needs to happen there? Oh, at a societal level. Mm. Well, I mean, if I've got a magic wand here, I would like to, I would like to change human nature to make it more <laughs> altruistic and less selfish. Is that what you mean? Um, no, we were just discussing, you know. People, it, people misbehave because we have different desires, because we compete for resources. And because we've got different understanding of what the good life is, to paraphrase Aristotle, and because of that, people compete. People cooperate when they willingly delegate some of their freedom in order to achieve more security, but more opportunity. That's more of a, kind of a political point than anything else. But but it, but it's one that I'm wedded to. Human nature doesn't change, but the systems in which they operate can change. So I suspect that one of the ways in which we could make behaviour better in schools via the societal route would be for people to understand that children, all children, need a, a, a thorough socialisation in being a flourishing member of a flourishing community. Now, 95% of parents understand this and do their bloody best, but because of the fracturing of things like the extended families and so on, that used to be the, the norm paradigm, there's been a lot of disintegration of of how parenting skills are passed on. And, you know, people still do their best and try their best, but there's a lot of people like me and my wife whose parents are miles and miles and miles away and don't live with nearby family who had basically had to work out to be parents for ourselves and don't have lots of support mechanisms and so on. And in those types of circumstances, you do see a bit of fragmentation and, you know, and people doing their best and struggling. So, for instance, look at mobile phones is a perfect example. I see loads and loads of parents who give mobile phones to primary primary age children, which smartphones with no security yeah. protocols on them, and I just think, well, that's that's fascinatingly stupid of you. Yeah. But, <laughs> you right. Exactly, they don't have the they don't have the tools to say no to that. Or do they yeah, think- yeah, yeah, yeah. So they literally don't know in the first place this is a bad idea. They think, oh, all the kids have got them, so they should probably have them because it's nice to give in to your kids. Everyone does, but as you say, it's also a, there's a behavioural thing there. It's so easy to give in to children. I do it. You know, but then I have to go back and read my book and remind myself not to. You bought the Smiggle, um, didn't you? You bought the Smiggle. <laughs> I bought shares and Smiggle. I don't know because my kids are older. <laughs> so I, I think it's interesting. One of the things I was going to ask you is this because I, I feel I, I, you know, lots of people, lots of really interesting commentary around sort of uh, post COVID and catch up, and some people are amping up the kind of. I literally saw a head teacher or an ex head teacher actually saying, Our kids are traumatized. We need this. And I'm thinking, I don't see, I'm not seeing loads of traumatised kids. I'm seeing lots of kids who are quite happy to be back at school. But do you feel like there's there's one sort of school of thought, which is let's, let's look at that curriculum, teaching and learning, knowledge, reading, and that's the way. And others are saying, let's put resources into social care, you know, wraparound and social mental health sort of services, that kind of thing. And sometimes these things are presented as kind of opposites. What, what's your sense of that, you know, kind of where we should be putting our... Well. Because because I'm not actually in government, um, or am I? Um, I don't. I've got the liberty of saying we should throw money at everything. (laughs) That's the beauty. When you're in opposition, you can say more money for everything. And when you've actually got the money, you think, hang on, this isn't my money. Um, But I I mean, so so yes, I believe in wraparound care. I think schools need to have more integrated inclusion units. They need to have more. members of staff who are both trained teachers and also trained pastorally and therapeutically to do 
the the hard work with the more challenging children, but in school in a nurturing environment. So I believe in all that. But what I think is really interesting with the COVID situation is that people use COVID's a magic mirror, right? COVID people look into the magic mirror and see whatever they want to see, and people use COVID and say COVID has proven that people should do exactly what I've always said they should do. So for example, <laughs> the people have thought to get rid of exams have said, look, get rid of exams, and the people who thought that you know that that, that children. Um, I don't know, I'll need a therapist. Still think children need a therapist. And what I think is fascinating is this. The vast majority of children had an unpleasant, um, no, the vast majority of children had a mixture of an unpleasant time and maybe a quite nice time bonding with their parents. And it was difficult at times and some bits were better, some bits were worse and so on. Some a small percentage of children have been kept in toxic environments where they've been exposed to abuse and neglect. And a vast, a vast majority of children were delighted to get back to school because they find enormous meaning and purpose of being at school. It's their social and peer group. They miss their friends. And a lot of children forget, let's not forget, a lot of children like te- teaching and school far more than we think. And it's a great great place for them. It's a safe place for them. And parents are bloody happy to see them back at school. Now, the idea that every child is traumatised, um, or most children are traumatised, or we need to set up enormous trauma centres and trauma tents and so on, is an enormous insult to the concept of trauma and the children that go through trauma and people that live with trauma. And, and people throw about this word as if they know what it means, and, and they, they don't know what it means. Children have had a difficult time. You know what? Children are pretty resilient as well. So we, what we do is we say to children come back from school, we're so happy to see you. We missed you. We're glad to have you back. Let's do some bloody great learning. Boom, let's go. <laughs> and, you know, I, w- I would avoid the kind of catch-up conversation. Just say, let's go. Let's start learning. But keep your eye open for the child, children who have had difficulties and difficult times, and the staff members too, and people who have been through bereavement and loss and trauma and difficulty and long COVID, and make sure that there are some support mechanisms for them there, even if it's just a, 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 some pastoral care or a chaplain or someone there to talk to or something like that. That makes Definitely. sense to me. I mean, I, I agree with you. So, Emma, what's your sense of it? Were your kids traumatised? No, I What a question, Tom. I can't believe <laughs> they've gone but the thing that they missed most of all um was their teacher because the the relationship at primary that primary practitioner in their lives is a huge part of their life they see them potentially more than they see their parent and there was a real sense of loss for the first few weeks that they couldn't check in with that person um and the, the absolute joy when they went back to school I mean my youngest is only in foundation stage but when he went back in in the October when we, had, we kind of we went back and then we had that he turned around to me and he genuinely said this he said this is the best day of my life mm-hmm. when he went back when he went back to school and I was just thinking that is absolutely amazing and just shows you what a huge part of a child's experience life experience going to school is and those people uh, so absolutely I mean as I say we we find we find, I mean, this is going back to Maslow here, but we find an enormous amount of meaning, structure, purpose and status in our relationships with others. Well, who are, who are the people that children interact with, particularly their primary phase? It's, it's, it's a lot of it's, their, you know, a third of their life is with their peers and with their teacher. It's a surrogate parent in some ways. And, you know, we, we you know, children frequently behave better for their teacher than they do for their parents because they know they can't push the boundaries quite as much. Mm-hmm. We hope that anyway. Yeah, so mine aren't traumatised. <laughs> no, I <laughs> I want, I, I want to ask you another thing, like, because, you know, we talked about running the room and I, there's so many things in here. There's so many kind of nuggets. I was just just earlier, I was I was reading uh, the, 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 the chapter about scripting and there were some yes. and stuff. And 
there's some real sort of like fine grained practical things that you can do to run a room. And I, and I love all that. Are there, do you, when you work with teachers who, you know, will say to you, I'm, I'm struggling with a class or I've got this problem. Do you find there are some really common issues that they're saying to you, like some hot things we just almost predict they're going to come up with because these are the standard ones? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, I remember when I used to write for the Tez and I was the behaviour agony uncle. Uh, that, 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 was, that was my first title. Then <laughs> did Guru and then Tsar. Um, I, I'm, I'm waiting for night next or something. Um, and what I found was that people were sending the same problems in over and over and over again. It was always the same stuff. It was, it was um, uh, the, the most common one was low-level disruption. The second most common problem was um, I'm not getting supported by my line manager. Uh, third most common problem was I feel like I want to give up. You know, was that, you know, it's kind of thing. And I realised very quickly that there was only about ten or twenty things which commonly went wrong a lot for most teachers. Obviously, there are exceptions, but for most people, it's um, somebody's late, someone's forgotten the book, someone doesn't have equipment, someone told someone to fuck off, or or whatever. Sorry, bleep that out. Um, you know, and there was the same things over and over again. So I realised that what you could do quite easily was you could script a response in advance of the behaviour happening. And what I also found really interesting was that this isn't a new, this isn't a novelty. In, in training and education, many fields have discovered this. So, for example, if you join the army, before you before you go into live battlefields, you will be trained using live ammunition. You know, you'll have real bullets flying over your head so that the first time you encounter a bullet isn't on the battlefield when you might just have a heart attack. So you get used to it, so you become familiarised and desensitised to the to the overstimulus of, of something as, as threatening as that. So this is something that many, many fields have already done, that you train people for the job before they have to do the job. Airline pilots doing 10,000 hours of a flight simulator before they get into a 747 or doing 10,000 hours or whatever, you know, however many hours, you know, in, in smaller planes. Um, people, surgeons practising on cadavers before... They do real surgery. I mean, practicing before you do the real thing is such a common thing in education. It's barely worth mentioning. Yet in teaching, we don't do that. We do, or Some people do, but it's not really a thing, which is why I think scripting is such a useful thing to do because you're giving somebody a skeleton, uh, a launch pad, a climbing frame of what other people have done and found quite useful in the past so that eventually, a bit like learning your scales and your arpeggios, you can start to play jazz with the wisdom of people who've preceded you. But... You've got that wisdom to inform your practice rather than having to invent the wheel every single time a cohort comes through, a new generation of teachers comes through, which is madness. And yeah, yet it's great. Do you think it's because when behaviour is working well, you don't see it? And that's why it's so hard to kind of articulate why it's working well and that you only need to address it when it's going wrong. And that's why it doesn't necessarily get modelled or talked about or articulated in the way that it should. Because if you're if you're watching an experienced teacher who's really effective, there isn't the behaviour to necessarily watch yeah. a lot of the time. It is it is a metaphysical and perhaps an ontological error, obviously. Right? I, what, the reason why is that people attribute behaviour to some kind of innate sense of goodness about a person. Like it like it's a gift which is given by the fairies in Sleeping Beauty at birth, in the cradle. You know, people are either good or they're bad. And people forget that behaviour is learned, that the the, 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 the the rituals and the traditions and the routines and the norms of our behaviour are all learned. Very little bit of our behaviour is completely intuitive. It's mostly ritualised and taught. And what you find is that when people see good behaviour in a child, they, they say that's a good child. Well, what, what they mean is that child has had experiences 
to habituate them into these forms of behaviour. And frequently you'll get a school with lots and lots of really, you know, great, well-behaved children. And it might be it might be a primary school with 40 kids in the Cotswolds. And the behaviour is immaculate. And the kids are just lovely. And the mistake that many people make in that circumstance is we're really great at behaviour. When actually what you are is you're, a, you're the recipient of multiple members of the Lucky Sperm Club, um, <laughs> which is okay. And then that, I mean, I'm delighted. I, I wish everyone had those advantages. But don't pat yourself on the back and say, look, look at the great work we did. And this is why many schools in the independent sector can get away with being rubbish at behaviour. And I've and I've I've worked with lots of schools in the independent sector, and I say to them, "What do you do? To, what do you do to manage behaviour?" And they kind of look at me as if I've just asked them something. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Don't have to worry, yeah. Yeah, you know. Well, we've got somebody smoking pot last week. You know, that's that's about it. I think it's interesting when you know. I think one of the things is that there are certain things which are. It's a bit like, you know, momentum of sustaining. So going into a school with. Um, like one of the, I, I've shared this before. when I went to be the head of the grammar school in Chelmsford. One of the things I, I learned, which just blew me away, was the teachers' expectations of the students in terms of their work and the homework were so astronomical. I'd never seen it before. Like right. it was, you really set that amount of work to do over the weekend, and the students would do like a ton of German would practice overnight for tomorrow's lesson, and no one batted an eyelid. And it was just, it was just incredible, and I, but that's because that was already there. That was the culture. It was totally just sustained. Every new teacher who came in just did that too, and the students expected it, and it was just normal. And so it's, it's only when you have to sort of reach to, to get to get to that that it seems like you have to make this almighty effort. Yes. So it's like changing, changing cultures is so hard, isn't it? Well, there's, there's a line, um, one of my favourite lines from Camus, where he says, in the end, you could get used to anything. And it's absolutely true. Human beings are incredibly flexible. You know, people people endured Belfast and, and Beirut at the height of the troubles and the terrors. People get used to, I've worked with some teachers in Burkina Faso where some of the children had to walk 15 miles to get to school, you know, on a daily basis. And you just, and when they got there, there was, you know, one teacher if they were lucky and, you know, barely, barely any, any classrooms. And you just think people can get used to so much stuff and people can people can learn to live with difficulty, but also they can learn to, exceed circumstances that other people just think they can't. The human nature is, is is demonic and angelic, and it's inspirational in many, many ways in terms of what people are capable of when they put their minds to it. But as you, but as you say, with other people, it requires vast oceans of, of determination and willpower on the person who's trying to change the behaviours of other people because you yourself have to be more resolute than they ever will be. You are the coach, and of course the coach can't stop. Do you get frustrated? I mean, I always. I, one of the things. One of the things that, it, that I, have to, I have to sort of like coach myself out of it because I get so enraged by this, which is when let it out, Tom. Let it out. People, people who've never had to do it, criticise schools who have strict behaviour. Oh, oh. Um, oh and, are, and are wishing them to have a soft, lovely, fluffy policy, uh, but they have never run a school or had to. I mean, it just. I just could go mental about it. So how, how do you feel about that kind of discussion about that, you know, strict well, You know you're pressing one of my triggers here. You know yeah. that. You, 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 cheeky, you cheeky little, little monkey here. Um, yeah, of course I do. I, it drives me mad when people who know bugger all about it talk as if they do know about it. And it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't matter to me if they'd, sometimes they didn't have influence and they form think tanks and they form, you know, select committees and they, and they sometimes have influence 
over schools, either through things like governorships or because they end up becoming the leaders of mats or, or they become office inspectors. <laughs> um, there's a lot of people in the system who don't know how to manage the behaviour of, of challenging children. And the reason for that is because there's no mechanism to prevent people who are rubbish at managing behaviour or who have never experienced it in the slightest. There's no mechanism for, for preventing these people from getting into positions of authority over people that do have to manage behaviour. So if you look, you go to a school and you'll sometimes find members of SLT who couldn't manage a challenging class, but who are advising new teachers how to manage a challenging class. Mm. And I mean, I mean, at least that is usually well meant. At least they're trying to do their best. But they'll frequently come up with things. I remember a story I often tell is that I was told in my first few weeks of teaching with a really challenging class, they said to me, have you ever thought about putting the most challenging student in front of the lesson and putting her in charge of the lesson? And I went, no, that hadn't really occurred to me, but <laughs> give it a try. So I put this, her name was Katie, right? And um, I, I've, I've forgiven her by now, or have I? Um, I put her in charge of the class, and she spent about 40 minutes doing a Shrek impression of me. You know, hello, donkey, and so on. And, um, and I remember sitting in the back of the class, just humiliated. What am I doing? And uh, the boy next to me, a really nice boy, said, so what, what are you doing? And I said, I don't know. I've no idea. I went back and got the got this was my one of my mentors. I got up the next day and he said, How did it go? And I said, It didn't go well. It didn't go well, if I'm honest. And he said, Oh, really? And I said, What happened when you did it? And he said, Oh, I don't know. I've never done it. <laughs> you know, and you told me to do it. And this is what education is like when people can just put a finger in the air and say, oh, I'll give that a try. Who knows? And that's why I started to search it because I'm I'm sick to the back teeth of that kind of rubbish. I'm just thinking, because I work with loads of early career teachers all the time, and I'm just thinking, if if you only had, like, 30 seconds to just give them a few quick wins... <laughs> Get out! Get out! <laughs> no, because I knew, I knew, when I was training, the, the, be, the best piece of advice was that my mentor gave me was, don't rely on force of personality. Use Lean on the behaviour system. In, it, lean on the behaviour in your school to do the heavy lifting because you will be exhausted. And, and I took that with me all the way through. And then my NQT year, my head teacher said, never shout because you've got nowhere to go after that. So those two those two pieces of advice have served me really well. Don't, don't rely on force of personality, lean on your system, mm. and don't shout because you've got nowhere to go. So what would be your kind of quick wins? And I have to credit Nimish Lad with this question because he asked me to ask you. Really? Um... <laughs> Right, okay. So I've got 30 seconds, have I? Okay, so first of all, I'd well, say... No, we can have as long as you want, but if you it's, imagine you had like... Just what is the question, Emma? <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know what I'm answering now, because apparently I've got as long as I like. So in that case, I was put into a six-week induction process. Okay, well, I'll stick to, I'll stick to the, what I was going to do. I would insist on what I originally said. I don't even know who you are anymore. Who are you? <laughs> um, right, so I've got 30 seconds. So I'd say... I'd say well, young Padwan, <laughs> what a career choice you've made. <laughs> first thing you need to do, and I would, I would lean in and say, first thing you need to do is buy Tom Bennett's Running in the Room, available <laughs> from John Cat Publishing. And then with the last 15 seconds, I would say, if you've got any money left, I would buy Tom Bennett's Running the Room Companion at £12.99, far more reasonable. Get them together, you can get £2. I'm kidding. Right, the real advice... I would say, is, I would say, children hate boundaries. Children crave boundaries. 
you need to be the one who builds the boundaries. So teach them how to behave because they don't know how to behave. They're relying on you to be a grown-up and they need an adult. And it doesn't matter sometimes if it feels tough and it will feel tough. But do it anyway because they need you. Your job is important and it's not going to be easy, but it's incredibly valuable. That's what I was saying. That's that's beautiful. I'll tell you what, I wish that was nicer than buying my book, I think. I wish you'd been around in um about 1994, when I was being fried by um, my year nines, and I was, standing <laughs> the I was thinking, what the hell am I supposed to do? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 1994, <laughs> I, just, I just arrived in London with my knapsack in my back, yeah. bartending in Soho. So I wouldn't have been much used to you then, if I'm honest. But I could have been from my time. I think it's, I, I think it's brilliant. I mean, I, I actually love the fact that we, we. We are starting to have this dialogue, and um, it, I feel like it's always like it's just starting. But I feel like these discussions that are there, the, the resourcing, the fact you've got the books, and the fact that you're available, and I mean, all this is like with this hub system and more messages, more more sources of people saying yeah. this is how to do it. I, I think that's absolutely fantastic, and I, and I and I actually think you're someone who I, I think really does a good job of flying the flag for this because. Like today, I had an email from a, te- a head teacher I used to work closely to when I was in Islington, and he said to me. Oh, it's great how you've you know gone on since, blah blah blah. And I was, and I and I actually think no, he, he's one of the best head teachers I've ever met. And I, I actually feel like no, everything I've done since then is I've just been overcompensating for the fact that <laughs> I can I can't do what you do. Like your school is amazing, and the way that he ran his school, with the behaviour was impeccable, the standards are incredible. And and I just think no, you are the you are the person. People like you, if we with and you you're really good at, at making that that point that that kind of you know, frontline stuff really matters and people who do it need maximum support. Yeah. I start every single um, one of my training and anything I do with any teachers, I start off by saying thank you to them for still doing it because it's hard. It's, it's, it's wearing and it's dispiriting. I love teaching, but, you know, it grinds you to the ground. And and and, and if people don't do it, then, you know, then nothing we say matters. And I'm a big believer in, in uh, trying to be where the universe needs you to be. You know, and 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 I feel like I'm doing some good, and I hope I am. I, I do try. I do try. I do try, and I don't overestimate what I do. I don't think it's changing the world, but I think it's it's helping the small wee bit right in front of me, and that's what that's all any of us can do. But um, but I think that the teachers and and leaders often forget just how important what they're doing is, and you just have to think back to your own childhood and the teachers who made a difference to you, and you think, yeah, they do matter. Sometimes they don't matter at all, but they're always a chain. A link in the chain of other people's lives, and that's an enormous responsibility. No, it's, it is. Well, I mean, honestly, I, I think we we have to wrap it up now because because uh, it's because time is up. But it's been a real don't go. To to I love hearing you talk. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a, it's a pleasure. A real honour to talk to you again. Thank you very much for having me on. Eventually, uh, and really, really nice, nice to meet you, Emma. And I'll see you Ross again. And you. Yeah. It's been an absolute pleasure, and and I I absolutely wow. Book. What a great book. That, book! that book doesn't look like it's opened. That spine is unsullied. You, you will actually find it's full of writing because oh, yes. I've actually written in it. Fabulous! Where do you think I got my quotes from? Yeah, and we'll see you. We'll see you at Research Head in in the September. Looking forward can't to it. Wait. Fingers crossed, but I can't wait for the face to face again. So I'll see you there, guys. Thanks, okay. Tom. Thank you. And thanks everyone for joining us for this episode. Uh, Mind the gap, making education work across the globe with me and Emma and and Tom today. Tom and Tom, see you all in the next episode. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Mind the Gap. We hope you enjoyed hearing what's on our minds today. 
For much more great content, make sure to check out the video version of our show, which includes additional segments and features. Visit edcircuit.com or go to YouTube and subscribe to our channel, Mind the Gap with Tom and Emma. See you next time.